You know, we come from different places for different reasons, and we all experience the presence of God and God's Spirit in different ways. We even hear Jesus' words sometimes with different ears, but we are here together as the church, and it's our goal and our desire this morning to worship God. So uh, we invite you into God's presence. You're going to be blessed by this day and by this service and all that's packed into it, and uh, we want you to sit back and enjoy. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we thank you for drawing near to us in this place and in our lives each day. We want to be followers of Jesus, but we first must confess that we don't always want to follow him, especially when the cost is too great. Sometimes we don't even want to listen when the conversation turns serious or demands too much of us. We prefer to indulge ourselves. We cling tightly to our own lives and we grasp at worldly rewards. God, forgive us, we pray, and allow us to hear your word today to us and remind us that we are your people and we are called out from the world to worship you, to serve you, and to bless your holy name. So help us to do that today as we worship in Christ's name. Amen. I want to shift gears today to um, talk about faith. Faith is a choice, and we're going to be looking at a story um, Somebody is pointing to the number 116 on the wall. So if you have number 116, maybe you want to go rescue your child in the nursery. How's that? <laughs> and if, uh, or maybe it's uh, not anybody in here, but somewhere else in the building. So, uh, but evidently there's a need in the nursery. So if you have kids in the nursery, you might want to reflect on that. Um, <clears throat> Luke chapter 7 is a story that Jesus uh, uh, is involved in in an encounter with actually a military uh, person. So I want to um, help us to uh, take a look at that this morning. You know, years ago I discovered what other people have known much longer, that faith is not a feeling, it is often a conscious choice. And we choose to believe in God if we do not choose uh, we will never believe. And I'm not sure who coined the phrase, but I know I heard it attributed to author Peggy Noonan, who said, to believe, we must suspend disbelief. In order to believe in something, we have to, disp to um, suspend our disbelief. And I like that. I would even go further and say that until we suspend disbelief, we never truly believe. But I want to add to that statement today, faith begins with a conscious choice to suspend disbelief and to open the door to what might be that has never been before. To open the door to what might be that has never been before. How else are we to understand the miracles in the Bible? How else are we to face some of the hopeless situations that we face in life? It's, it's right at this point that Noonan's insight speaks so powerfully. To believe means to suspend disbelief. There's more to it than that, of course, but we must start there. And if it's a miracle we need, and who doesn't need one sometime, somewhere, then we must suspend disbelief. We must stop saying, this can't happen, because when we factor God into the equation, nothing is impossible. In the Gospel of Luke, there is a story about how faith works, and this story gives us a glimpse of unusual faith found in an unusual man who displayed this faith in an unusual way. 
And here we see a person who suspended disbelief so that he could believe and as a result received a miracle from our Lord. Three people star in this story. It is Jesus, it is a centurion, and a slave. And there are six unusual things that we need to notice. The first unusual thing about this story is that a Roman centurion would care so much about a slave. We know that at least, we know the least amount about the slave himself. We know that he must have been a young man, probably a teenager, and Luke says that he was sick to the point of death. Matthew's version adds that he was paralyzed and in great pain. We never see him, Jesus never meets him, the centurion never mentions his name, and we don't know the cause of the illness or how long he had been sick. And I picture this nameless slave lying motionless on a cot, his breath labored, his face bathed in sweat, his pulse racing, the only sound, an occasional moan or groan, and death is tightening its grip with every hour. And it's evident to all who see him that only a miracle is gonna save him. And that is why the centurion comes to, to Jesus. He's looking for a miracle. We know much more about the centurion. He lives in Capernaum, a small fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as the name implies, the centurion was captain of a hundred soldiers. Chosen for their leadership ability, centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, They were always non-Jews or Gentiles. The New Testament uses the word centurion 21 times and always in a positive light. The most famous time being when the centurion uh, is watching Jesus die on the cross and he says, this man truly was the son of God. And with that as a background today, we come to the central fact of this story. The centurion had a slave whom he highly regarded. Now this uh, was very rare. In the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They could be mistreated or even put to death. One ancient writer commented that when your animals are old, you throw them out to die, and you do the same with your slaves. The second unusual thing in this story is the centurion's response. He sent some Jewish leaders, some Jewish elders, to go find Jesus. And this is how Luke tells the story. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum, and at that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. It's unusual that he didn't go himself. It's unusual that he asked a Jew to go in his place, and it's unusual that they would even agree to do that. Relations between Romans and Jews were never very good. The Romans had no use for the Jews and their faith in God, which they referred to as barbarous um, superstition. And the Jews hated the Roman overlords and the occupying army of their nation, which the centurion represented. In the normal course of things, the Romans and the Jews interacted as little as possible, but this man was different. When the elders speak to Jesus, the stress of the centurion, uh, they stress the centurion's good qualities to Jesus. And look at verse four and five. So they earnestly beg Jesus to help this man. If anyone deserves your help, he says, or he, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. 
He loves the nation of Israel. And he's proved that by building a synagogue in Capernaum. And if you ever visit Capernaum, you can go to the remains of a synagogue that was built back in the second century. And underneath the ruins, you will see foundation stones of an even earlier synagogue that many believe is the synagogue that the centurion built. So it's no small thing uh, what he did. And now this kind of rounds out the picture of the centurion. He was kind-hearted, he was wealthy, he was generous, he was public-spirited. He was the kind of man you would want for a friend. And the Bible says that the Jews begged Jesus to go because the time was short, the servant was dying, so Jesus agrees to go with him to the house of this Gentile to heal the slave of a Roman soldier. He didn't have to go. He didn't know it to the man. Uh, worthiness had nothing to do with it. Back in 1862, Frederick Farber penned a hymn that's still in our hymnals describing uh, a, a scene that could have been written about this story. And here's, what he's, here's the words of the hymn. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy for, with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of a man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. So the third unusual thing in this story is that Jesus was willing to go. But here's the fourth unusual thing. Jesus never made it to the home of the centurion because the centurion would not let him come. And the reason given ought to capture our attention. The centurion said that he was not worthy of Jesus visiting his home. Look at verse six and seven. So Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent friends, some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. The Jews said, this man is worthy. The centurion said, I'm not worthy. See, we see wrapped up in these verses two great traits of this man. One is humility, which is a true estimate of oneself, and faith, exemplified by the statement, Jesus, all you have to do is just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. And then we see the reason for such faith, and it's in verse 8. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come and I say to my slaves, do this and they do it. So the centurion speaks exactly the way a military person would speak. A soldier's way of thinking shines through his uniform. When I give my command, I expect instant obedience. I don't have to be personally present for my soldiers to obey. And you have, you have unlimited power, Jesus. Just say the word and the disease will disappear. The centurion, you see, has an amazing faith. He has figured it all out. He argues from personal experience because he knew about being in command and giving orders that has to be, had to be obeyed. And he says, Lord, you have the power over disease and I have the power over men. And he argues from what he knows about himself to what he knows about Jesus. If my authority produces instant obedience, how much more will your authority 
produce. How much did this centurion know about Jesus? Well, maybe not much. I'm sure he knew about his background, something about his teaching and preaching, and certainly knew that Jesus had been working some miracles, but he did not know um, that, that Jesus was anything more than a man. A car, more, uh, he, he knew that uh, he had no idea he was talking to the creator of the universe. He saw Jesus for what he was, and his great faith came from that vision because he saw Jesus as absolutely authoritative. He considered Jesus' word as absolutely authoritative. He knew that Jesus didn't have to be personally present for his servant to be healed. And that brings us to the fifth unusual thing. Jesus was amazed by this man's faith. Verse 9 says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Only twice in the Gospels does it say that Jesus was amazed. Here, because of this man's belief, and once in Nazareth, because of people's unbelief. But the point is, this man is a Roman centurion, he's not a Jewish leader, and yet he has faith. It pops up where you least expect it, and this is faith outside of Jesus' own people of Israel. And that amazes Jesus. We must flip it over, uh, we might flip it over and ask, why was this faith so rare in Israel? And after all, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had centuries of tradition, they had the knowledge of God, they had history stretching back to Abraham. They had received all the promises of God. They had every advantage that this centurion did not have, and yet this Roman centurion has more faith than they. What happened? Part of it is a focus on, the, the, the Jewish people focused on certain signs uh, that they expected to see, and when they didn't see those signs happening, they wrote Jesus off. Their abundance of knowledge actually made it, them overcautious when it came to the Son of God. They were, as a, they were afraid that he was a fake. Luke's story ends with the sixth and final unusual thing, and that is that Jesus heals the centurion slave without even a word. Verse 10, and when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Jesus did something that went way beyond what the man expected. He didn't go, he didn't touch him, he didn't pray over him, he didn't do anything outwardly, he just healed him, period. It's a pure grade A miracle. How did Jesus do it? I don't know, but I know why he did it. He did it to demonstrate beyond all question that he was the son of God who had the authority given uh, to him over sickness and over disease and over even death. So let me wrap up this message today by focusing once again on the key point, and that is that Jesus was amazed by this man's faith. What does it take to amaze Jesus? Faith, audacious faith, unexpected faith, unashamed faith. That's what in presses our Lord, and I'm glad about that because if it took money or education or power or connections, then a lot of us would probably be disqualified. And if it took being super religious, a lot of us wouldn't make it there either. So if it's faith that impresses our Lord, then we need to know how faith works. We can take, I think, two vital um, uh, facts away from this story, 
as a take-home uh, application. One, faith works when we come to God with our own sense of unworthiness. As long as we think that we deserve a hearing before God, uh, our prayers will go unanswered because God isn't impressed by the things that impress us. God doesn't play by the same rules. So many times we talk as if we're saved by faith, but we act as, as if we're saved by our works. And down in our hearts, we believe if I were just a better person, God would probably answer my prayers. So we try and we keep on trying. We work hard. We go to church. We obey the rules. We act nice. We try to be good. We hope that that'll all make a difference to God. But when we get into a crisis, suddenly we start praying like a real believer. When life crashes in around us, when we're backed into the corner, we see clearly um, what we secretly knew all along, that our good deeds are really nothing in God's sight. Even our best moments are colored with self-interest and pride and ego and mixed motives. And when our loved one is in trouble, when we realize that it's not uh, anything that we can do, it's only what God does and God alone. That's why it's a good thing to be backed into a corner now and then. Desperate situations make us Christ followers all over again. We quit talking about how wonderful we are and we simply cry out, Lord, have mercy upon us. You see, there's no prayer better than that kind of basic prayer. So the first step in salvation, the one that really matters can, and can never be skipped, is to understand that we desperately need saving. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. As long as we think we have a claim on God, we either will not come to Christ, or if we do, we'll always be secretly thinking that, uh, it, that we weren't really that bad off in the first place. It's good for us to be completely humble before God because when we come as beggars before him, our pride is stripped away, the arrogance is gone, knowing that uh, you know, if it weren't for the grace of God, we would not be coming to God at all. But when we come before the Lord crying out for mercy, that's when we discover the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And then finally, faith works when our confidence in the Lord is so strong that we're willing to even risk embarrassment or failure. That, I think, is why the Pharisees, who had plenty of religion, never really had much faith. It was too dangerous. It was too risky. They had to play it safe. They couldn't afford to be embarrassed. They had an image to keep up. And that's why the centurion got his answer. He didn't uh, know very much, but what he knew he was willing to take a chance on. Think about the risk that he took. What if Jesus had said no and wouldn't come to his house? What if Jesus tried to cure the servant but failed? What if Jesus rebuked him because he wasn't Jewish? It's a wonderful thing to, to be in so deep that we need a miracle to get out because that's when we're most likely to receive one. Something, or someone said that faith is, is belief plus unbelief and then acting on the belief part. So many of us never get around to acting on the belief part, do we? We can know a lot, we, but sometimes we believe a little, and that's what the Pharisees, that describes the Pharisees. Or we can know a little but believe a lot, and that would be the centurion. Better to believe a lot based on a little knowledge than to know a lot and believe almost nothing. So here in this story is both a warning and an encouragement for us. The warning to those who have great knowledge but practically believe very little. 
and encouragement to those who know very little about the Bible or about the Christian faith and yet trust God completely based on what they do know. So in essence, we end where we began this morning with the observation that we, to believe we must suspend our disbelief. And as long as we limit God to what we think he can do, we will never see anything great happen because our faith remains small. But once we're willing to suspend our disbelief and renounce our skepticism, only then do we, do we become a candidate for a miracle. See, the life of faith is inherently a life of risk. It's not for those who are timid, who want to play it safe all the time. John Calvin, the great reformer, put it this way. He said, how graciously God pours out his grace when he finds the vessel of faith open. Are we open to receive what God has for us? The writer and movie producer Nancy Spielberg once penned these words. said, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain, in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. See, faith's power does not rest in knowledge or religion or good works. It's much simpler than that. Faith is not just trying uh, harder or being nicer. Faith works when we stop playing it safe, when we throw away our little cup, and when we, with uncertain steps, risk and come running to Jesus with a bucket, knowing that he will fill it to the top every time. But we will never know that until we run to Jesus. Pray with me, will you? God, we turn to you in times of faith and in times of doubt, in joy and in anxiety and hope and fear, asking you to grant us such faith that we might approach you in confidence and with our deepest needs and heart's desire, confident of your commitment to bless us in all things. So today, look into our hearts. No matter how we turn to you, we trust that your grace and love will hold us in your care. God, draw us together. Inspire us to preach your good news, that faith can be found where we least expect it. And it's in the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.